I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast, and a whole load of badass. This week, we're joined by poet, author, and playwright Joelle Taylor talking about her new book, Plus, we give you our views on the news, including Roseanne and would you download a stalker app? One, two, three, four! Welcome to Badass Women's Hour with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton here at Talk Radio. Ladies, hello. Hello. It's hello. nice to be back together again. All of We've us been together. Yeah. And it feels so good. I actually don't know what you're singing. I feel, I feel, I feel so out of it. What you is it? It's a great 80s classic, that yeah. one. I, yeah. Oh, I know. I was just listening to the musicals in the 80s. I was such a geek as a child. It just wasn't cool enough. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so as ever, we are starting off with our kind of stories that caught our eye in the news this week. First one from me. Abortion centre in Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland at the moment in the middle of the whole abortion debate after the referendum in Ireland. And it's come out that a US anti-abortion campaigner, Brandy Swindle, has actually set up what she's calling a pregnancy clinic in Northern Ireland. And women who go to this pregnancy clinic are being thinking they're going for kind of advice about what to do with their pregnancy. And instead they're being told things like, they're too beautiful for an abortion. What? And if you have an abortion, it's going to give you cancer. <gasps> I am just so frustrated by this. And, I, and the reason I'm frustrated by it, A, because it's happening at all. Uh, don't peddle your own beliefs under the under a banner of you know impartial, impartiality. But also, I'm frustrated because in the Times today, there's an article from Matthew Paris saying that the island referendum had brought out a kind of celebration around abortion. No, people. All we want is just access to simple, clear advice, guidance and healthcare. Emma? Yeah. Well, I just it's horrendous, isn't it? Because it's just people just seem to be forgetting about how like vulnerable people are and how and sort of state they are if you're going for termination. I've had lots of conversations this week about, you know, um, that the change in the law is trivialising abortion and people will see it as a method of birth control. And I'm like, are you actually joking? I don't know anybody who would see abortion as an alternative to birth control. Like, have you ever come across anybody who, who has that state of mind? No, and I think also, you know, it's... If you are in the middle of what we're politely terming a crisis pregnancy, but let's just be honest, a pregnancy that you're not sure you want... You want somebody to just listen. Yeah, surely. so this woman sounds like she, well, she's just massively taken advantage of that. But the thing is that 
you know, what I suppose my point is when somebody's in a vulnerable position, they are more likely to be influenced and manipulated. Um, so people like this woman are extremely dangerous and what awful stuff to say. Like, is there anything that's stopping her? Like, is she being... I don't know. Nat, do you think this is... Uh, is there anything we can do? Or in stopping her, is that actually a kind of impinging then on somebody's right to say what they think and make some money yeah, out of it? In stopping her, you give her a, uh, an even bigger platform. And I think that's how it's been built out in the US, especially across the Midwest. The more that you, the more that you try and shut these organisations and these people down, the bigger their voice gets because people then rally to them. And I think that's the case whichever side, side you're on. Uh, I also know in the US they have these buses that drive up and down the country preaching this this message and i i hope that they don't expand from this center in and use the same operation uh, across ireland because you know this legislation is so new and so to do something like that could set the whole movement back and cause what would be you know e even more confusion for someone that's going through this process and something that is so wrapped up in, in terms of it being quite political too and I just I think it's completely insensitive for her to jump on this and um, and build out something she's doing in the US and Ireland well, it's fake news as well isn't it like you know that's what I'm trying to think I'm trying to compare it to mm -hmm. is like what's the antidote if you don't shut somebody down what's the antidote to fake news is yeah. it that you have to give make sure you give people the education well, like how do you shut her down it's true a... I bet I bet she's like I have evidence mm. and um, so again the more that liberal media say it's not true the more she can say but of course they'd say it's yeah. not true and i because you can you can make any bit of evidence that you want um for me it's more her doing this at a very sensitive time yeah. and what it's going to do for uh, a young woman a woman going through this to have this conflicting message and messages in such a stark kind of it will give you cancer i mean what kind of message do you want to hear when you've just made uh, a decision like that I'm going to get cancer. I, you already feel bad enough. And so that for me is just like... <sighs> yeah, we're just annoyed with her. We, yeah. I'm, I'm actually annoyed with anyone who tries to impose their views on other people. Enough of it. Mm. Apart from us. Apart from us. Oh, yeah, because yeah. I was always right. <laughs> <Obviously>. <laughs> uh, Nat, what story caught your eye? Uh, so this is hot off the press. This caught my eye uh, today. Front cover of the Times, Google is cashing in on spy apps for stalkers. So basically, abusive partners can track women via their phones. Um, there are some tracking apps that can be bought online and secretly installed on phones. And it's estimated that 10,000 women in, in Britain each year are being spied on by their other halves. So their other halves are watching where they go, listening in on, on you know what they're doing, where they're spending their money. Once installed, the apps provide GPS location data. Can you, you can read people's text messages, see their call logs, and even access the phone's camera and microphone. No and way. so if you are in an abusive relationship and your partner installs this, they have access to all of your life. So if you were planning to leave them, they Very know right. because they can see every single message you've just sent. And, you know, obviously the headline is saying it's Google. There is a company that's making this this software. It's not Google making this software. So I think we need to take that company down. Um, but they are obviously en enabling it. But to all happen. those apps have to be approved before they even get to the point where you can download them, I thought, anyway. By, through an app store, yeah. So it's been, um, they're available on Google Play Store. So Google has not said that then they cannot be because i didn't think those apps could be used unless you had some kind of authorization now i do think that you know if you're a partner you might have access to somebody's phone and be able to download 
something without them knowing. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realise you could get apps that you could download without them knowing. Well, uh, so I actually did know. Harriet. Uh, <laughs> well, because the other thing is, so way back in my early 20s when I was dating somebody who I should not have been dating and he sort of played into, let's say, some of the less emotionally secure parts <gasps> of my psyche, I at one point was like, maybe there is something I can download to find out if he is messaging other women on email. This was way back in the early, like before smartphones, right? Spyware. So I did have a Google. I never actually did it. I would like to put that out now. (laughs) I never did it. It was a step too far, even for me. Um, But I definitely considered it. And when you were reading that, I was like, I bet there are a lot of, we're talking about in terms of abusive relationships, but I'm sure that actually they're going to say, well, we're marketing it to people who think their partners are cheating. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. Well, right. So mm-hmm. just so one spyware provider called Hello Spy, um, that's not on the Google Store. I should add, used an image of a battered woman to sell <gasps> its software. Yep. The the photograph featured a man grabbing a heavily bruised woman by the wrists. And its website says up to 90% of marital affairs may include the use of mobile, phone or email. Good news that technology can be used to detect and reveal infidelity. So it's selling. That's how it's basically it's selling. selling control. Yeah, exactly. But there, it, there, well, I always thought there was an approval mechanism. For well, them. I mean, I think there should be an approval mechanism on that advertising. And I think that advertising should be taken down. But can I say, though, those those software is very good. My sister's installed it on oh her husband's goodness. app. I'm no, trying no, to really push this. And H is like, well, I, well, I, I the wouldn't marketing, The marketing of that fundamentally awful. For my sister, it's changed her life. She installed it, <laughs> installed it on her husband's phone because she got sick of saying, what time are you coming home? Where are you? Because of the kids or because she's going out. And now she tracks him so she knows exactly based on his serious? location. Yeah? Are you being serious? And it has changed their lives. Yeah, he no longer has to check in with her because she's like, what time's my husband going to be home? Is he going to be home by the time that I get there? Or where is he? Is he? Oh, he's at that pub. That means he's not going to be home. And they don't have to have these silly text messages. But if you flipped that, so this is the thing. So like, I'm holding my hands up and I'm saying that, you know, when I was, was there Googling, idea. how, do I, how do I stalk my boyfriend? You mm-hmm. know, that was at a point in my life where I was not emotionally stable. And... That is like, you know, I, I think that's like a side of me that I'm really aware of. And so I really have to keep it under control. I have to be like, I know that I can be like, OK, well, where are you? What are you doing? Actually, not because I'm a jealous person, mainly because I'm just massively curious. And I'm like, but I, I <laughs> stop lying, exactly Harriet. Yeah. Stop lying. <laughs> I'm going to call you out, Harriet, because you're curious. I'm, oh, I'm just curious to know no. where you are and what time you're coming home and if you're cheating on me. It's not actually about cheating. It's my own insecurity, which is like, would you rather be with some, not even like another woman, would you literally rather be with your mates than with me? Okay. Like, so it's, I was going to say, because you can't from... tell it by someone's location whether they're cheating. My, my brother-in-law could be cheating on my sister. He's just at that pub. <laughs> All she wants to know is, is he going to be home in time for her to hand the kids over so she can go out? Yeah, and also, I'm actually, in fairness, I've never, I, mainly because I date people that I'm like, who else would date you? you know, like, but I'm never actually that worried that people are cheating on me. I'm just worried that they're getting bored of me. That's what I worry about. So that's, that's really? it comes from that How could from that they get bored of you, Harriet? How could they? I know, how could they? Okay, but going back to your sister. If that was a man doing that to a woman, yeah. we'd be horrified. Yeah. Yeah, but it was like, I mean, I don't know. I just feel like, yeah. I, this so is the thing. Someone, so a, a man has being abused been, <laughs> what, So, well, there are more than a million stalking victims each year, we, I should say. Yeah. And a man was banned from Bath um, in his early 20s because he secretly installed these tracking apps on his girlfriend's phone. And so obviously there's a legal bit here where people are realising 
because stalking you can it's a criminal offense yeah, right stalking mm -hmm. and so if you're using an if so you're not following them but you're using an app technically you're committing a crime too yeah the i the only I think the only way you can justify that, and I don't know why they're not doing this, would actually be selling it as a safety provision for children. That, I think, would be a good use of it, actually being able to know where your child is. I, I don't think it's a tech. Like a I think it's how people are using the tech. Because I think if you are installing that to sneak up on somebody, then that's that's about you that's not about the tech because mm. like you say you put that tech in the context of keeping track of your child and suddenly everyone's fine with that tech yeah but that's you know the way they're marketing it from what how it reads now is they're marketing it right as you there can track yeah and, and that's partner. not okay that's not okay but it's but that's it so uh, did you yeah. guys see the black mirror episode um where the mum buys uh she puts she puts a chip in her child's neck so she, basically they go to a park and the child goes missing, she freaks out, and there's a company that's selling software so she can track her child and see what her child is seeing and manage her child's emotions. And it it's so scary. So I'm not even with you that being able to ge geolocate and track and see what, you know, basically use my child's phone to see what they see. I also think that's a violation of, of their privacy. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, now, our next story is uh, Roseanne. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah, Emma. Roseanne. Tell us what's been going on with Roseanne this well, week. Well, you can't fail to miss her absolute catastrophe this week. Now, I, I was kind of vaguely aware that they commissioned a new Roseanne show, and I remember watching it when I was a kid. I didn't realise that... Uh, so this week, Roseanne put out a very racist tweet that she then subsequently went on to blame her um, sleeping pill medication. And I love the statement from the, the manufacturers of that that were like, racism is not a side effect of our, <laughs> of our, of our drugs. Very funny. But I didn't know that previously she has known for her uh, alternative point of view, shall we say? Or am I just, yeah. do I need to be polite about it? Not right really. wing, very right, right wing. wing in not a good way. Uh, and then she so she did this tweet and fundamentally uh, her new show that isn't out yet got pulled and shut down. And I was like, that is brilliant. The ABC have taken that stand. And then I found an article about the person behind that firing found out that it was a black woman and I was that got me thinking about the conversations around diversity and how important it is to have people at different levels in the organization from diverse backgrounds and then I thought to myself would this woman would this have um show been pulled if it wasn't a black woman in such okay, a but the position context of who is the black woman because that's uh, important. Channing Dungy. No, but what's her role? She's the ABC president. Okay. And so it's not just there was a black woman that was around the corner that fired is that how I, is that how I kind of you like, it. When I... You were like, because it's a black woman that's behind it. The important thing is it's the president of the network. It's the person that runs the station that said, do you know what? Not having this, even with shareholders, even based on the fact that this is our highest rated show and we are a commercial network, it is not good enough and you're out the door. And that is also... Yeah. So my my what the point I meant to make clumsily was the fact that she is a black woman in a very powerful position. Yeah. She was able to make this call, and I it got me thinking. Going, if it was a, a white male in that position, would they have pulled the show? Would it have would have would they have had the dramatic impact? So I wonder if they would have pulled the show in two thousand and eighteen, but maybe not in 2017, 2016. So Agreed. I feel like we're in a different time right now where actually people won't accept that anymore. And I, I sort of feel actually her decision to pull the show wasn't down to 
like her own personal beliefs i think it was a commercial decision mm. she went actually we are going to suffer for this commercial because we've seen brands pull advertising from uh places that are now out 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 and out sexist or racist i think it was a commercial decision that's what i think now what do you think well, it's also important to say that the same woman that cancelled the show is the same woman that commissioned the show. And so she knew Roseanne's character, knew that she was out and out racist and still thought this is a good commercial decision. I'm going to make it happen. She did put some things in place. <laughs> One of the writers was a black woman. Um, and I think that balanced out the sort of right wing sort of jokes. And there was there's a new black kid. Someone had a black baby <laughs> or adopted a black baby. I don't know. Anyway, um, so it was a slightly different format. So she commissioned the show. So the fact that she pulled it to me says, yes, that, you know, she understands the commercial behind it. She understands the mood. This would not have happened in 2017 by any means. But we are in a completely different time where, well, A, people have platforms like Twitter to say stuff. And that which means there's a whole wave of people that can respond and say this is not good enough. Um, and I'm pleased that they listened because it shows you can't walk around being a douche and still have a job mm -hmm. in this day and age. And oh, most yes. people that act badly will get found out. And I think there are a lot of people that believe that they can be mean, they can be horrible, they can be sexist, they can be racist and never be found out. And that is not the case. You might not get found out today, but in five years, 10 years, it will come out and your career will be over. And so I think people need to reassess how they how they treat people. I mean, if you're out and out racist and you hide it, I don't know if that's any better, but I think people are just more conscious that you can't get away with it. Uh, I thought also I really liked that it was so decisive. I liked that she was just like, nope, done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're out of here. Um, the other thing, I was reading this article about uh, the president of ABC, whose name I've currently enough forgotten. Uh, Channing Dungy. Thank you. She also once fired her sister. Yes. Did you read that? Mm -hmm. well, I mean, she is badass. Yeah, she is a woman that's just her like, actress. this is a tough commercial decision has to be made. We're making it. Yeah. Why uh, did she fire her sister? So uh, her sister was an actress in Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, Merrin yeah. Merrin Dungy, and uh, yeah, just who did she play in Grey's? I don't know, babe. You'll have to IMDb it. I don't know. Somebody don't know. text us know. and tell us. Tell us. Tell us. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I'll probably have final story. I think depending on time, we'll see. Next story: uh, Women on boards. Nat, tell us what have the men been saying about the women on the boards? <laughs> well, we're useless, apparently. Of course, we are. Oh, we yeah. are. And you are a woman useless. who does sit on boards, so <laughs> yeah, even more interesting. Yeah. So uh, some research was done um, as part of the ongoing Hampton Alexander review, which is looking at increasing female representation on boards. And they surveyed the chief executives of FTSE 350 companies. So these are the top performing companies in the country. Um, and business leaders basically just said women are a bit pants and they don't fit in the boredom environment. Uh, and we have a list of the range of excuses that chief executives and chairs of these companies um, have given for not appointing more female directors. One is that there aren't as many women with the right credentials and depth of experience to oh, sit on the board. Yeah. I hate that yeah. merit argument because it implies that all of the people sitting around that boardroom table are already there on merit and they absolutely are oh, not. No, oh, we don't want the hassle. hassle. We can't deal with hassle and pressure, people. 
No, we can't. have a lot less hassle if some men did some stuff around the house. Do you yeah. know, my favourite one was, I don't think women fit comfortably into the board environment. I was thinking, have you not met Natalie Campbell? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm on a whole load of boards. Because <laughs> she I'm definitely badass. fits exactly. in a boardroom. Exactly. <laughs> and also, that, what that says to me is, we don't want to change the atmosphere around. We quite like the fact that we can all tell our little sexist jokes yeah. and organise our golf outings. Yeah, flirt with the secretary when she brings the coffee in. <laughs> or when they have one, they've basically said, that's, that's enough. Yeah. No more than one. We've, we've done our bit. Over to Dave to do his other thing. And we also know there are more men called Dave, Steve, Paul sitting around boardroom tables than there are women. Yeah. Basically, boys, those excuses, simply not good enough. If you are so smart and we are so stupid, come up with better reasons why we shouldn't be at your boardroom <laughs> table. That's what we're saying. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Badass Women's Hour XL with me, Harriet Minter, Emma Sexton and Natalie Campbell. Um, before the break, we were talking about really terrible excuses for not having women in senior roles in business. Well, so just to say, we've got the usual debate going on. So not only should we not be around boardroom tables, we should not be on the radio, ladies. Who said that? We should, Who so tweeted Dan, us? Dan thinks we should not be on the radio. Aww. It's a tad sexist to have a full hour dedicated to women. Oh, that's the second Dan. person. Yeah. I love those Do you tweets. know what's even more sexist, Dan? Having three full hours dedicated dedicated to women. There you go. Yeah, That's what we've got. It's We're just greedy, it? greedy, greedy, aren't greedy we? Greedy women. Oh, Dan. Sorry about that. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> Not so, sorry. <laughs> even more women for you now, Dan, because it is, of oh, course, yeah, our badasses of the week. It's our <laughs> badasses of the week. Uh, first of all, Nat, it's yours. Who is she? So my badass of the week is Gabby Edlin. And that is because Gabby is blazing a trail when it comes to talking about periods, period poverty and and not just period poverty but also the, all of the things that, that women and also um, refugee women need when they are being resettled in the UK. Um, and last week she uh, had an installation of period pants in Parliament Square outside the Houses of Parliament uh, as part of World Menstrual Hygiene Day. I've probably got that slightly wrong. 
Uh, but it also coincides with the fact that uh, this week, Scotland is the first country in the world to give low-income women access to free sanitary wear. So Gabby is my bad la- badass, and I think she's on the phone. She is. Oh. Hi, Gabby. Hi. Thank you so <laughs> much. What a lovely introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Gabby, this installation sounds amazing. Tell us a little bit about it and how you made it happen. So um, I've got to, first, it actually happens to be volunteer week um, and the entire thing was made possible by our volunteers. We've got a 100 strong group of um, women and men who are just the most amazing people and they were the ones who helped us get it all, to, all together and all up. Um, but what we basically did was hang about 100 pairs of knickers painted um, with red splotches um, on, I believe they call it the gusset, um, which is my new favourite word, um, <laughs> to represent um, and to sort of raise awareness of period poverty in the UK, and specifically um, asylum seekers and refugees, which I think Nat mentioned is who we campaign for in, um, specifically. Uh, um, but it was, yeah, a group effort, absolutely. For anyone who isn't sure of the term or hasn't heard the term period poverty before, what does it mean? So it's basically um, people who can't afford the products that they need to carry on living their lives while on their period. So it could be that you just simply can't afford sanitary towels or tampons or reusables. Um, and that usually comes within, um, you know, the sphere of, of general poverty. It's not something that exists on its own. It's, it's very much within, um, you know, the, the poverty crisis that we're facing in the UK at the moment. And you are, I understand, campaigning for this kind of across the UK. What is happening across the UK that we should be looking to emulate or roll out? Well, Scotland's obviously leading the way, um, being fantastic. Like you said, that they're now going to be all offering all low-income women, um, I think it was free or at least affordable products. And really, um, everywhere in the UK needs to follow suit. But there also needs to be um, a much better education of, um, period products really and just periods in general I think there's a, a whole lot of um, shame and, and silence surrounding them so actually quite a lot of girls and, and young women and people who menstruate don't actually know what's going on um, throughout their months um, so we you know there's, there's lots of fantastic women doing amazing stuff um, out there uh, gosh I can't even think of any off the top of my head but um we can, we, Gabby, we can shout them out. But, yeah. I, you know, you were my badass of the week. Partly I saw all of the campaigning on social media. Um, oh, and great. I just, I think taking that to somewhere as public as Parliament Square and sending that message and also doing all the work you do to collect these products and make sure they get to women that need them is just so badass. You were my badass yeah. of the week. Yeah, thank we you so much. No, thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Gabby, if people want to find out more about what you're doing or get involved, where should they have a look? So our website is the first port of call, which is bloodygoodperiod.com. And we're also on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. If you just search Bloody Good Period on all of those platforms, you'll find us. And there's loads of ways to get involved. But the thing that we most need is people just to send us pads um, so we can keep getting them out there to the women who need them. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Gabby. And thank you for all the amazing work you do. A real-life badass on the phone. I loved her. Yeah. Uh, so, Emma, who is your badass of the week? So, my badass, I don't know if you remember the story. I think we covered it. Um, it was probably about this time last year, about Saudi women 
being now being able to drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now there's apparently an initiative going on out there and they were looking for driving instructors to then teach these Saudi women how to drive. And I found a story about a woman in Wales, so Susan Newborn, who is one of three driving instructors that is going to, she's 56, and she's going to move to Saudi and teach these women how to drive. And I just thought, what an amazing thing. She had her own driving school and she's applied for this opportunity and she's just going out there and she's just like, I really want to do this because I want to see other women achieve. Um, And uh, yeah, she's going to be heading out there in the next couple of months. And how many people applied for the jobs? It was loads, wasn't it? 1,500 for three jobs. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I just think, well, also, I think, without trying to sound like, I don't know if patronising is a word, but I just think at 56, for you to just mm-hmm. kind of like up sticks and completely change your life, I think that's quite a badass thing to do. Because I, I kind of feel like the older you get, the harder it is to but shake mate, everything the up. The weather was quite bad here. So I'd be like, mm. And she's in Wales. I mean. Yeah, <laughs> wet, bad, wet weather, mm, you know, Saudi. So, uh, yeah, bye. I'm out. Yeah, but Saudi's a lot of dust. A lot of dust out there. No, it's not. All a desert, Emma. Is it not? Well, it's no. dusty, though. I've I, been mean, to I, don't, d- I don't think the dust is the worst thing, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Of, there's not a lot of trees out there, are there? Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, I need trees. I will not move it if there's no trees. One thing that has come up <laughs> alongside the story, which I think is really interesting, is the Vogue co- Saudi Vogue cover this week. Mm-hmm. So, so Saudi Vogue did... Um, the front cover was the princess of Saudi Arabia, or one of the princes of Saudi Arabia, in a car, celebrating the fact that women can now drive. And there has been uproar about it because she never actually campaigned for women to be able to drive. And 14 women who did campaign and were locked up for it are still in jail. I feel like Vogue maybe scored a bit of an own goal here. Nat, what do you think? I like the photo. I'm just saying. <laughs> I did. I liked the photo. It felt powerful. A woman sitting behind the, the wheel of a car, you know, straight into the camera, Badass as hell. It's a badass photo on the front of Vogue. I completely agree with the fact that she didn't do any of the work. Or we don't know, but, you know, we've been told she didn't do any of the work to actually get the bill passed. So she did not use her privilege to make change. But it's a bleeding good photo. Yeah, because I guess, like, so are you not allowed to celebrate the fact that women can now drive? Are you not allowed to celebrate anything that you haven't played the part in actively trying to change? Good question. Good question. Because I'm like, you know, like you say, I thought it was a powerful image. It's a powerful woman Mm -hmm. uh, and she sat in a driving seat. I mean, regardless, even if you took it out of the context of it being Saudi, Mm -hmm. having a woman sat in a driving seat is a powerful symbolic syndrome but I'm just like do you have to what you don't have the right to do anything unless you've pub you know personally been an activist about it no but maybe you have to be really aware of actually what the situation you're in is but maybe she couldn't because of the situation she was in so if you are the royal family maybe you're restricted on what you can do yeah but I feel that's actually that's such a cop-out because she's the one person who actually has a level of power she wasn't using it. If she was using that Vogue interview to say, do you know what? I am standing here and saying it is appalling there are still women in jail because I di- of this. I disagree. I we think need if you're to change part it. of the royal family, you're restricted on stuff. I think if you're in a position of power, you should be using it. She I has th- major privilege in a country where women have no privilege. Yeah, but I don't. But then what happens if you speak out on something and then you completely lose your privilege? How do we not know that she's not doing anything stealth, that she's not allowed to talk about or nobody is knowingly, but she has she is having influence? That's true. But then you need to be a bit smarter about it, don't you? So you could say, OK, it's a really great idea for a cover shoot. I really like it. It's fantastic. 
can we get somebody who was part of that campaign in on it with me? But that you, you know? wouldn't. But then for Vogue, you wouldn't, because Vogue just don't have those sort of covers. I know, but then why do it? Because maybe she's just like, I want to be sat in a car looking badass. Maybe she just wants to be on the front cover of Vogue, which I mean, doesn't sound we all? terribly privileged. Yeah. So actually, <laughs> a rather rather poignant statement. So going into the interview, I was trying to make to find out maybe she had done some work, yeah. and I don't know if she, she has. <laughs> but but uh, her Highness said, in our country, there are some conservatives who fear change. For many, it's all they've known. Personally, I support these changes with great enthusiasm. Mm. So she doesn't specifically say driving; she just says the changes. She also says it's easy to comment on other people's societies and think that your own society is superior. But the Western world must remember, remember that each country is specific and unique. We have our strengths and weaknesses, but invariably it's our culture and it's better to try to understand than to judge it. Oh, no, I fundamentally disagree with that. Fundamentally disagree. Mm, she is kind of... Uh, I'm yeah. sorry. If it comes down to women's rights, if it comes down yeah. to women being locked up because they cannot drive... Yeah, I don't think you can just I don't care a... about your culture. And that's not just sorry, a weakness. No. I don't think you can just call that a weakness. Yeah. Why don't you write a letter? I'm going to write a letter. Yeah. I'm going to write a letter to her. Maybe I'll email her. <laughs> <laughs> um, finally, my badass of the week. It's a cute one this week. She's called Raquel Gonzalez. She woke up one day. Her husband, Adam, was not in the bed next to her. She went down to the living room, found him there, completely bewildered because he'd totally lost his memory. Had no idea who he was, where he was, or who she was. And um, so, so he says. Well, so he says, yeah. <laughs> so the story is that actually he was a victim of domestic abuse in a previous relationship and had PTSD because of it. And one of his symptoms were were these blackouts where he loses his memory and they don't, never know how long they're going to last for. Uh, so she knew this. She knew it had happened before, but never happened in their relationship. So she picked him up, she took him to hospital. She nursed him. She looked after him. She helped him learn everything about his children, about his life, about who he was and what he was doing. And um, she basically created an environment for them to fall back in love again. So they fell in Aww. love reaffirmed their vows and uh, three years later again he got his memory back you so, love this because yeah, she's looking romantic. so wistful she's right now she's eyed basically it's a movie yeah, uh, exactly. yeah. but do you know what I think we live in a world where it's really easy to be like do you know what this, I mean I'm sorry that is a difficult situation right you wake up and the person that you're in a relationship doesn't remember anything. Mm. Doesn't remember anything. First of all, I wouldn't easy. believe them. I'd be like, are you just trying to get out of this relationship? Yeah. Are you lying? <laughs> do you just not want to do the babysitting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one is. It would be so easy to be like, this is just too complicated. I'm out of here. So I am here for the people that would be like, it is complicated, it is difficult, I'm pushing through. Do you that, think, to me, is badass. Do you think she suggested putting a tracking app on his phone? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would That's do exactly after that. what it was. <laughs> badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. We are really lucky because we are joined by award-winning poet Joelle Taylor. Uh, she is the author of Songs My Enemy Taught Me, a new book of poetry which is out now. Um... Joel, I think you're going to start us off with one of the yes. poems from it. Hello, yes. everyone. Um, so I'm going to read a little excerpt from uh, Canto. It's kind of the title piece of the book, and it's uh, relating to my own story um, and what happened to me when I was a child. And we're going to join the poem um, after the event has happened and just do a few excerpts from Thank it. Thank you. One. The bed is cold, and my teeth are abandoned buildings, and somewhere there is the smell of something burning a book, a flag, a letter. In my room, 
At the top of the seaside hotel there is a single bed with a white sheet. I cannot think of anything to write on it. The bed is a slowly developing photograph. Here's us around the dinner table. We are smiling like carved meat. No one notices that the daughter is eating herself. Here's you, walking home from school. Your shadow walks behind you as if ashamed. Even the trees whisper about you. You have embarrassed the wind. And here's him, and him, and him. A family portrait, successful, ironing their uniforms and double-folding their smiles, catching children delivered from the conveyor belt of their wives' wombs and holding them up to the bare light bulb to bless. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. They are boys. And here are the stairs, and here the long corridor you are afraid to walk along. Perhaps it is your cervix, too. My womb is a war zone, after everything is taken, after the soldiers have left, spitting into the palms of their hands, after the shelves have been emptied and only sell nothing, after the nothing gathers in great mountains at the sides of the streets, after the streets are running with hungry ghosts, after women's skins are slung from washing lines, after children write their names in the dust that once were their fathers I carry the war in my womb. Three, 12 years old. There are small bodies washed up on the shores of my eyes when my photograph is taken. Another girl's face appears instead of mine. Four, I remember how silence was a choir. There's you in the kitchen, vibrato. There's you at the back of the class, Soprano, there's you walking home, tenor. Your solo silences are everywhere. Five, for Christmas I give my mother an uncomfortable truth. She wears it when I visit. Beautiful. Wow. <laughs> I think the entire studio has got goosebumps. <laughs> Thank you so much for reading that for us, Gerald. No problem. It is an incredibly personal poem. So tell us a little bit about, I guess, how you... Tell us a little bit about how the book of poetry came to be, what made you decide so, to write it. basically what happened, so I set up the National Youth Slams about 18 mm -hmm. years ago through the Poetry Society called Slambassadors, and through that I was mentoring literally thousands of young people. Because of my own experience growing up in a kind of um, chaotic and economically deprived background, and what happened to me growing up was that my family didn't have anywhere to live, they lost their jobs, and we ended up in this B&B &B in Blackpool. And whilst mm -hmm. I was there, I was sexually assaulted by guys who in the hotel who were involved in the military so that became a kind of theme um, so what happened is I just found last year I couldn't continue mentoring young people until I kind of mentored myself a little bit so I wrote this one poem and um, Outspoken Press heard me read it at an event and asked if I'd be interested in writing more but then we decided rather than me just talk I'm not very comfortable just talking about myself and I don't think women are in general very comfortable just being that personal so I, I decided 
said what I wanted to do was to look at women's situation and experiences worldwide. And so I led 18 masterclasses with women from marginalised communities, from prisons to girls with FGM, um, asylum seekers, refugees, etc. I interviewed women, I read a lot of books, did a lot of kind of online interviews and... Basically, the book is a kind of snapshot of women's experiences globally right now. So up until last year, had you spoken publicly about your sexual abuse? I had, okay. but I silenced myself because basically people don't respond to it. There's never a party when you say it, do you know what I mean? <laughs> no one's like, wicked! It's, um, it's a kind of conversation killer. So when yeah. I was younger, I was talking about it all the time. I wrote a play about it, an award-winning play. But mm-hmm. then I was like, I can't actually become seen as a serious, credible artist while I continue to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so I went on to talking about lots of other different stuff mm-hmm. and I got more kind of successful doing that. But then there comes a point in all our lives where you just have to return to the truth in order to progress not just as a human but as an artist as well so at that time at the time you started talking about it and going on that journey it just felt like your most authentic self absolutely absolutely and this was my play came out in 1994 Mm. so a long long time ago and the progression the conversation around sexual abuse um has progressed a huge Mm. amount since then we can actually say it without kind of apologizing too much but you know um and obviously, since the book came out, um, hashtag Me Too has happened, yeah. so women have been adding their voices with all kinds of different experiences. Um, but I still feel it's... I had a conversation today about it, which is just how bizarre that 52% of the planet are still treated as a marginalised community, mm. you know, with our little women's books and yeah. women's shelves <laughs> and, and that kind of thing. So I do feel like it's something was very personal it's actually quite universal too mm, I yeah. agree Emma Joa when did your when did your writing start because something that I thought was really beautiful was just the way that you used words and your expression there's a real art to that have you always been writing from yeah. a from a very young age from a really young age I was writing basically I really wanted to be a punk star <laughs> um, but was so bad at music I couldn't even get in a punk band um, so I was I was kind of like a lot of working class kids educated through music and for mm. me it was the punk movement nowadays it's hip hop or grime or progressions from that but that's how I got into it was listening to lyrics and trying to respond to those and then through there kind of fell into poetry a little bit and found it like most people very alienating at first until yeah. I started it myself. So just building on what Emma was saying um I think one of the lines that really got me when you said even the wind was ashamed Yeah, and I was like Damn, that's good. Do you read your stuff sometimes? I'm like, I am. I am exactly. I am so good. I can't wait for someone to read this. You know, sometimes I'm on stage and I'm doing a really heartbreaking poem, and then I'm like, yes. Made everyone cry. I mean, you know, there's a glory in communication, isn't isn't it? And that's that's irrespective of men or women. Mm -hmm. There is a moment where we all connect. Mm -hmm. But I think, in particular, women, when we get together, there is a sort of alchemy in audiences or in masterclasses and workshops you know where um where something amazing is created with that energy in that space how do you get to a space where you are i guess able to do that because when you know, four of us and you're totally right it is a universal thing we all have something that at some point in our lives we're ashamed of that's mm. a sexual assault if it's addictions if it's eating disorders 
you have to be able to, I guess, kind of deal with that yourself before you can talk about it or just talking about yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think it can it can run parallel. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's this old thing about writing being therapy and I think mm-hmm. writing is therapeutic, but don't just see it as that. You can't yeah. go up on a stage tonight and read, you know, your therapeutic writing. I mean, you could, <laughs> but people are like, okay. So you do need to develop technique and it's a really good way of processing stuff, particularly poetry, mm. because it's distilling yeah. huge things. It's making you think in a very clear and concrete way, which helps you to recover in some sense. It becomes a kind of survival. Yeah. So helping others with that then, you work, you've work. you worked in Pentonville, yeah. um, Holloway. What was it like going into the prisons and, and meeting women? And, and I'm guessing you were going through poems in, in from, Absolutely. from the book. Absolutely, yeah. What was that experience like? Okay, amazing. Mm-hmm. So when you're working with in the women's prisons, so I work a lot in men's prisons, but when you go into a women's prison, um, obviously there are fewer women's prisons, but it's quite a startling thing as you walk in um, because you can. it feels very different. Number one, the first thing that hits you is how many black women are in prison. Mm-hmm. The second thing that hits you is how many gay women are in prison mm-hmm. and all of them are working class and you're struggling at times to find someone who's like a proper criminal in the way that I would yeah. describe it. You're mm-hmm. looking at sex workers and addicts and women with extreme learning difficulties. So when you get all those women together in a room, it's the alchemy I was referring to earlier, so you start off absolutely terrified, mm. but um, within minutes, there are fingers clicking, they're doing that thing of agreement, mm. and women are shouting back to you, and very keen and very eager to tell their own stories. Mm. Yep. So it's been a, a really amazing and positive experience. So you enable them to be heard almost through sharing your story. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the point. Where the microphone doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the person behind me. Mm-hmm. And that's the same with the pen. And that's the ethic of the whole poetry underground spoken word scene. And are they very open to the poetry in terms of mm. y- using that as a tool? Because I could imagine that if you're not very, if you're not, um, I, I don't know. I Personally, I think I'm a bit, I love poetry, but I'm like, I don't know where I would start in terms of yeah. doing my own thing and how receptive. <laughs> I might be. Yeah, to... you know, all the women I've worked of, I've worked with have been really, really keen to express themselves in whatever ways. And f- poetry is that kind of structure. If you give a structure, it's kind of simpler. Yeah. Everybody starts by saying, yeah, man, I like writing short stories, though. <laughs> and then they read their short story and you're like, yeah, it's a poem. Um, <laughs> so I think, I think um, it's, it's a condensed way of telling your stories mm-hmm. and and it's a very visual way as well yeah and we're very visual people and musical yeah you said you worked with women in prisons have you worked with other marginalized communities mm. and what was that experience like um well I, i've been really fortunate in that it was an incredible experience i did 18 master classes and um, with various communities um, one of the most difficult was a bunch of 13 year old girls who were at risk of or had had female genital mutilation mm. and that was really that was only difficult because of me being an older woman standing outside that door with sweat pouring off me like going how am I going to talk about vaginas <laughs> you know but I didn't need to I just walked into the room and they they were very ready to talk to me I was like okay stop now um, and um, it's, it's, it's harrowing yeah. So with poets, obviously, we don't get supervision like social workers get. Nobody's going yeah. to talk to us afterwards, like, how did that make you feel when she disclosed this or when she told you that this is happening to her right now? Um, but it's very empowering to speak. Silence is extremely dangerous. Mm. What we do to ourselves with it and what we do to each other. And you know, even just sitting in this space, like the three of you can have real connections in here and... And it changes worlds. 
you know. And I think, Cesar, there's something about that. I think the position that we're in now in this particular point in history as women, mm. where we are all finding voices and giving voices to other women. Do you think, I really hope this is a, conti- a start of something bigger. Is that how you feel? Well, yeah, I really hope it is as well. It should be. Yeah. It's 2018. And this book, obviously, we, there's parts of it that are, are specifically about the West and about yeah. the UK. But the most alarming thing is when you start looking at other countries. I was trying to find out, I was trying to find the date for when misogyny started. <laughs> it was a Wednesday, that's all I know. <laughs> you know, so God had like a really bad day. But you're trying to figure out all the time why though? Mm. Yeah. Why though? And I, I, I still don't quite understand. Um, so for me, the, one of the most important things about the book was the discovery of these other voices across the world. And one of my favourite parts of the book were a series of poems called Landes that I actually commissioned Afghan women refugees to write. It's, it's a, a kind of haiku that only lives in Afghanistan where women are not allowed to write under the Taliban. Mm. So it's very political poetry, but it's very bawdy. It's basically <laughs> pornographic. Wow. And these women in niqab and burqa wandering around with their heads lowered basically doing little porn haikus to each other (laughs) (laughs) but they're also very political so they talk about loss and grief and giving birth on battlefields and so one of the things about songs about enemy taught me was being able to put them publish them in a book and to kind of give them a platform that they might not have had we were talking about uh what it's like to be a working class kid growing up with this need to write Mm but no access to yeah. the arts. What was that like for you? It's extreme. Without music, without, in fact, without the punk kind of revolution, I don't know why I've, I'd still be in the slipper factory in Accrington. There's literally, um, even if you go to do poetry workshops today, yep. they're expensive, and that would have mm-hmm. absolutely prohibited me taking part in them. Who can afford to go to the theatre? Where are the theatres? Why, mm. why aren't the, why aren't theatre plays seen as part of our dominant culture? Why is it all reality TV shows? Mm-hmm. So it was a very frustrating experience. But you know, um, that gives you the opportunity to do it yourself, and that's I think what women excel at because we've always had to do it. It's like we have to create our own art scenes and working class humans have to do the same thing as well. So it kind of, it's created a new kind of cultural scene, which is the spoken word poetry underground scene. Yeah. Is that why you set up, you've got your uh, initiative, Slam Bastards UK. Right. Is that one of the, can you tell us a bit about how that came about, how long it's been going, what so you're doing with that? I set it up in 2001 through the amazing Poetry Society and it was... Um, it was a, it's, it was really a small attempt to try and help young people get access to the arts, but crucially to find their own voices and to break their silences. And these silences and these self-censorships were either culturally embodied or because of what was going on for them in their own lives in a very kind of um, a more therapeutic sense. Um, but very quickly within the first slam that we did, we discovered that actually they rocked, they can really speak... And we're creating a new kind of poetry because there had been no poetry education and so everything was coming from, again, music and films and Mm -hmm. created this new kind of aesthetic. 
Um, so that's how it started, and it just grew bigger and bigger. And a lot of the scene now, musicians like Rudimental, Crepton Conan, they came through Slap Ambassadors, Antony Guru, Coyote Ngonyu, wow. who just won the Dylan Thomas, Jay Bernard, who won um, the Ted Hughes Award. They've all come through this maverick, renegade, dirty little programme, which is still <laughs> the UK's only national youth slam championships. Wow. Um, and it's, um, you know, relatively unfunded. We just literally do it. Um, bits and bobs, bits of pots of money trying to keep it alive and keep it going. Um, and it, I think it's one of the reasons that spoken word is so prominent now because the whole yeah. generation mm -hmm. has grown up with us visiting schools and doing gigs. Yeah. Why do you think... Cause because poetry and theatre and the arts are seen as high culture. Mm. And so why is it that it is not funded for everyone to experience? And why is it that it isn't then taken as a given that it's a core part of education? I know you were on Educating the East yeah. End and you talk about um, poetry in schools. Why is it why why is it not being saying this should be the mainstream? I think the answer is in your question. I really do. I think it's a way of us dumbing down people. Poetry is quite a revolutionary act. Mm. If you go out on the spoken word scene, I'm part of a club called Outspoken and we regularly sell out all the big clubs in London. You, I mean, I'm talking two to three hundred people. So mm -hmm. it's this really vibrant, radical little scene where stories are being shared from all kinds of different communities um, and actions are being taken. So I think um, poetry has been taken by this establishment, this kind of almost aristocracy of literature, and we're told that this is what poetry is. Well, it's not. Mm. Poetry is what you make with your mouth. It's the oldest art form. It's not this new thing that is, you know, designed by Oxford and Cambridge professors. Um, and I think the reason it's not made more widely available is because people would get much more educated <laughs> and would challenge the dominant ideology challenge. Because there was a lot of debate around um, the rise of Instagram poets yeah. and whether or not it's real poetry mm. because people were putting a couple of lines on a, on a, on a visual. And I was like, but is poetry not whatever you say it is well, for the exactly. person who's writing it? Yeah, the word poetry means to make. That's what it means. Oh. Yeah. Oh. So essentially, it used to really irritate me when people go, Lee, I've made a poem. It's like, you've not. You've written <laughs> one. And someone said to me, no, actually, Joelle, that's right. So it's something you make yourself. And I think... Um, there are, there's one thing called poetry and within it there are loads of different forms. One of the forms is slam, one of the forms is spoken word. What's one of slam? The forms What's the difference between slam and spoken word then? Slam is an event. So when people say I'm a slam poet, you just want to go mate, no, you're grammatically incorrect is what you are. <laughs> <laughs> because a slam is an event and it was designed, came out of America and essentially it was about a conversation between the performer and the audience and creating a dynamic that us as working class people are used to which is basically if you're paying a tenor to go out you want to have a good time <laughs> so you want to go into an environment where you can listen to someone speak about something and your fingers are clicking and it's a physical experience you're shouting so essentially slam is a competition that is not a competition mm. so it looks like a competition but in fact it's not to find the best poet it's to find the best experience in the room right oh, okay no, it sounds amazing that. that's yeah. just sold it yeah. absolutely yeah. 
Joel, I want to ask you just on a slight different tack about something that's in the intro to your book that I was just really taken with. Um, you said you're talking about kind of your experiences and how you came to understand yourself. You said, I could have been... F- I could have been forgiven for believing that I was transgender, but I'm not. I'm a woman who is afraid of being a woman, and that is very different. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about what you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think, without getting into transgender politics too much, I think for me, as a very personal experience, um, the female body became a sight almost like a battleground. It became something I was afraid to be in, a dangerous place, and I felt targeted because I was a woman. And I remember very consciously, around about 14 years old, going, what would happen if I shaved my hair off? Mm. And and because I was a punk as well, I put yeah. makeup on that was just, like, appalling, <laughs> um, <laughs> deliberately, um, and tried to make myself something that wasn't attractive to the male gaze. Yeah. So I've always felt like I... I was running away from the body. The body was the site that was attracting all this negative attention. Um, yeah, so that's what I mean about it. And how do you feel about your body now? Do you Have you made peace with it? Oh, my gosh, I'm just starting to go through the menopause. <laughs> I was like, cheers, God. <laughs> um, so the, I, like, woke up and suddenly I was Dolly Parton. Like, I'd gone to bed, like, just like a skinny white woman and woke up huge breasts and hips and belly. And do you know what? I feel privileged because I haven't had that experience. I've had quite a childlike yeah. body for quite a long time. And I've now I know I know what it likes to walk down the street and feel your legs wobbling. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've never oh, known you and me both, darling. You and me both. <laughs> it was you know, but it's a privilege, isn't it? to feel this body and mm. to be alive and to experience well, and you know, and we all know what it feels like to have a woman's body and not be very yeah. happy about it <laughs> once a month but <laughs> but it is a privilege it's it's a home it's where my my whatever i am lives and yeah. you know it's it's got great gifts it's an incredible lesson to learn i think that so since 1987 you've written 17 books you create and put stuff out there what else have you got brewing so you're you're writing these books you've got plays yeah um, I'm actually on a world tour at the moment Mm -hmm. which is kind of came late in my life you know it's the kind of thing you want to do in your 20s very cool though isn't it very punk you don't become a punk rocker but you're still on world tour I mean it's so amazing (laughs) so I've done loads of dates around the UK Mm -hmm. and they all just kind of fell into my lap a little bit and then I got started getting invites to ever been Spain um, Estonia I'm off to Finland next week then Ghana, then Australia, then Singapore, and then finally wow. Thailand, and then back to Finland because I'm so famous there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not at all. Big in Finland. Is it like yeah. a concert yeah. where you choose poems from your body of work? And so you might do like yeah. a hit from the 1987. Yeah, and then you know you pick one from 2017. And everyone joins in. Yeah. They just stare at me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, it's like that. So I'm trying to obviously promote newer material and songs mm. mainly taught me and, and some people ask me very specifically for that, but I also have a reputation for education work and some of my stuff's on um, uh, a syllabus. So I'm often asked to go and do older stuff mm. and it does feel kind of good if I'm doing Last Poet Standing and all these kids are joining in 
part of you feels good because you've written a new book. The other part of you dies because you're just <laughs> right. like, oh my god, I need to write something else. <laughs> but, but yeah, it is a it is a great feeling. It's the nearest thing I could ever have got to being the punk star I wanted to be on top of the pops. You know. Do you ever look back at some of those early poems and think, oh, I would have changed that now? You know, you mm. artists quite a lot of the time they're never never happy with their work, are they? And they'll look back at something yeah. done ten years ago. Oh my god, I would never put that out mm. now. Absolutely, so, you've got such but a big body that's, of work. That's what makes you create more mm. is getting it wrong so we have to really value getting it wrong because mm. that makes you go is right then is it wrong well yeah mm. there are no mistakes <laughs> but, <are there? laughs> but if it's what is in your brain and it ends up on the paper at that point in time exactly I think that's a really interesting question about all kind of like published art, non-digital stuff, is the fact that it does capture it in that moment. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's a snapshot of where you are in yeah. that moment. And that's, that's a really valuable, important thing. Mm. And most of my work happens, a lot of work happens on stage and I change things continually, nice. you know, according to who else is in the room and I know Selena Godden she's a, an amazing spoken word artist yeah. who deliberately changes a piece each time because it's a part of the aesthetic that it's never mm. quite the same do you ever have a band behind you or music do you know what I did last <laughs> week no it's this week uh, a couple of days ago I did Tong Fu which okay. is a spoken word night where they have a three-piece band behind you and you go up and you do your 20 minutes and you have to explain to the band what the piece is about without telling them what to do. <gasps> that so sounds say, amazing. It's Soho, 4am, 1922. A small woman walks past and they've got to capture the mood. And then you, oh, as a poet, go. have to do it without kind of hitting... First time I did it, I sounded like Vanilla Ice. I <laughs> had a beat going and I just started going along with the beat and they were like, stop it. Um, it is incredible mm. and, and it, it gets a huge audience involved because they're all fascinated to see what's going to happen mm. anyway, if you can keep... So what's I want to go, yeah. Tong Fu, Tong and F-U for Fu, run by Chris Redmond and it oh, happens once it. a month Okay. at Rich Mix in London. It's amazing. Okay. To go to we're that. all going to go. Yeah. I, although I, you two can get up on stage yeah, I'm going to be like ah oh, no, I'm, just I'm just watching I'm just watching yeah. Yeah. if somebody wanted to if somebody feels like they have this desire to write this need to put something out there where should they start well, I would start with a piece of paper or a pen <laughs> I would start with something you really want to say and make sure you're saying it correctly I'd start by messing up quite a lot mm -hmm. um, write something there are tons of open mics across the whole country, especially in London. You can find an open mic. You can just sit at the back of the room and listen until you finally get the courage and stand there shaking and sweating and read your poem. And the response you get, because our whole scene is about listening and responding and, and encouraging. So someone might come up to you afterwards and go, mate, that was really cool, but have you thought that... Don't say the grass is always greener because, like, people say that. <laughs> Have you thought about something else? And you sort of learn. The audience edits for you. It's your first editor. Mm. Um, so that's how I would begin because you're not having to go through any kind of gatekeeper apart from your own fear. And is it, we always say to writers, write about what you know. Mm. You obviously do that. Is that yeah. where you should start? Do you think? Absolutely. But all, that doesn't mean to say don't be imaginative and yeah. surreal. Like, I really like things to be... Social surrealism takes a, a political issue and just stretches it, you know, to its absolute extreme. Um, but, yeah, write about what you know, but then investigate the world. Know more. Find mm. out more. Mm. Um, Joel, thank you so much for being with us today. You are going to be at the Ledbury Festival on 29th June, is that right? That's right. I'm there doing a special show with Sabrina Mahfouz at Roundabout 
nine o'clock in the evening. It's going to the be amazing. <laughs> We're going to look at Songs of Men Me Taught Me. Sabrina edited the book, um, but she's also going to be reading from How You Might Know Me, which is her incredible collection um, around sex workers. Brilliant. I mean, we've just heard a little bit of it today, but the book Songs of Men Me Taught Me by Joel Taylor... It's amazing. Go and buy it. We loved it. Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you so much for spending time with us, Joe. It's been fabulous. If people want to find you, follow you, all that kind of weird social media stuff, where should they be um, looking? www.joeltaylor.co.uk or Twitter at jtaylortrash. Same with Instagram or just Joel Taylor Facebook or, or literally follow me down the streets. <laughs> <laughs> we love that. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> that was the amazing Joel. Taylor here on Talk Radio with Badass Women's RXL. One, two, three, this has been Badass Women's Hour's Best Bits. Uh, if you liked it, please do rate, review and subscribe us. We love that. Five stars. Um, or come chat to us on social media. You can find us at Badass Women's Hour HR at Badass Women's Hour or come talk to us individually. I'm at Harriet Minter. At Emma Sexton. And at Natsy Campbell. We'll be here again next week, same time, same place. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.